Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. For anyone who wants to make money and make a difference, grow and leverage your enterprise better, get more done in less time, outsource everything and create your ideal lifestyle. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore. Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. So a little while ago, we had the special 150th episode and we tuned you in live to a Q&A session we had in my offices and didn't give it all to you then because we actually had about three and a half, four hours of content and we stayed way late and longer than we'd planned. So we kept some of it aside as a little bit of a surprise. So this episode, I guess, is part two of the live interview and the grilling from the Disruptive Entrepreneur community members to me and to Joe Valenti, my friend who won The Apprentice in the UK last year. So here we go, part two. Yes, what's your name, sir? Hi, my name's Graham. Hi, Graham. How could I improve my business financial literacy? I never did any MBAs or any degrees on business. So all the information that I've learned about, I've read in books, listened to podcasts, listened to audio books, and had mentors who've got businesses that are 20 million, 50 million, 500 million, 3 billion, and bit by bit, I've learned along the way. Now, if I were going and starting again, I probably would at school and college, because it's, it's on being, doing it the entrepreneurial way, non-school, non-college, non-university, has worked for me. But you know, you can't, you've still got to go to school when you're young. So knowing what I know now going back, which is a theme of some of the questions, I'd do both. Like I did all these arty fari airy fairy courses when I was at school, because I was very much the anti-capitalist. You know, I listened to Pearl Jam and Rage Against the Machine and fuck the system and capitalism is evil, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Fuck you, I'm gonna do what you tell me, rebel. Bollocks to all that. I'm going to do business. I'm going to do economics. I'm going to do anything that teaches me about business and finance and money. That's what I'll do at school and union. I can learn that side of it. And then I can go and do, go and hustle on the playground. By the way, in Peterborough, that means something else. So I should be careful what you say. But, you know, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to create a product and I'm going to go and sell it to the kids and I'm going to go and sell it to my friends and I'm going to go and listen to webinars and I'm going to go and read all these books and I'm going to listen to these podcasts. I think if you follow the people who've got those skills, do their courses, read their books, listen to their podcasts, over time, you'll do it. I have a rule that every few weeks I go on Audible, I save up a list and I just go and buy everything. So um, I'll probably buy 40, 50 audio books in one go. Uh, Your Personal MBA by Josh Kaufman, that taught me a lot. Um, How to Be a Billionaire by Martin Fridson taught me a lot. Uh, the 80-20 rule that Richard Cochroach taught me a lot. Built to Sell, John Warlow taught me a lot. Scaling Up, Vern Harnish taught me a lot. This, and by the way, when you read those, they'll refer to about three books each in those, and you've gone from six to 18. So then you just go and get all of those, and then you, you, you find their book, and then you see if they've got a Facebook page and a podcast, and you follow them. And all of a sudden, it's like you meet one millionaire, well, who do they hang around with? A load of millionaires. So it's just that first level. So um, if you didn't write all those books down, listen to the recording when it comes out, go listen to all of them, and then you'll get a load more. All right, no problem. All right, sorry, I disrupted the order. Who's next? Okay, 
Microphone over. Hi, I'm Sean. Hi, Sean. Hi, Rob. Um, I've done a values evaluation for myself. And You've done a what, sorry? A value value evaluation. Okay, yeah. And money and wealth creation isn't in the top three values. How can you change that? So you've done an evaluation of your values and money and wealth creation isn't in your top three values. So whatever's in your top three values, find a way of monetizing that. Because I'm, I'm, the thing with business and life and answers to questions is, usually the truth is a balance of both. So for example, you know, you get some of these billionaires who go, oh, well, you've just got to do what you love and don't worry about the money. All right for you, mate, you're a billionaire. Don't tell me you never focused on money. Whatever. Um, I think that's the politically correct PR'd thing to say. You've got to focus on money. But it's true that if you do, don't do what you love, in the end, even if it made money, you're going you're to fatigue on it. So if I was starting again, working out how I can meet my values and make money, I'd look at my values, as you've done, and somewhere along the line, so for me, in my values, it's growth, it's business, it's personal development, it's family, that kind of thing. So, okay, so thankfully growth and business, so growth is in my highest value, so write a book, learn more, write another book, learn more, write another book, learn more, write another book, learn more, grow the business, grow the business, grow. Actually, money itself is not in my top four. I think success, victory and competition are before money because when you're young and you play a lot of sport, you know, you thrive for the win. And then when you don't play sport anymore, you've got nothing that gives you the sense of win. You've not got the victory and also the defeat, which is pain, but it re-motivates you. And I realised when I didn't have any sport in my life and I didn't do the martial arts and I started to be, I need that. Every now and again, I need to win. It doesn't make me a bad person. I just do. But business gives you that because you can launch a book and it could be number whatever, one, ideally. Um, so yeah, link, link money to your highest value. Now that's what all these billionaires have done. They've monetized a thing they know is high on their values. Okay, who's next? Hi Jazz. I wish I had a name like that. That's a cool name. So as an entrepreneur, you go through lots of ups and downs in your journey. What's been the single most darkest moment in your journey and how did you overcome that? since starting Progressive or before? My darker moments were before Progressive when I was alone. So I think one of the things that is important to talk about being an entrepreneur is it can be a lonely road. And this is another reason why getting out and meeting new people because it's the opposite of that. And you can just work, work, work in your home, home, home because you can't afford an office and, you know, like, by the way, as well, if you work so hard that you don't see your kids and you don't see a fiance or your husband or your wife and then they leave you and then you only see your kids once a week, that's not good. So for me, the, the moments where I was alone were the darkest days. So in art, when I wasn't, because when you're not making money and you're alone, all you've got to talk to is yourself. Loser, more debt. You haven't got anyone to be outside of you to say, what about this, what about this, what about this? So when things go wrong, you beat yourself up and make them worse on your own, which is why mentors, inspi inspirational people, coaches, business partners, even you know, staff, just good friends, it's important to have them because they can often pull you out. So whatever times in the journey I've been alone have been the darkest moments. Now, the great thing is the more people you've got, staff, business partners, JV partners, 
you, you've got a bit of a cheat. And this is a bit of a cheat, but it's also smart thinking and leverage. But if I've got a big problem, instead of trying to solve it myself, I'll just ask the community or ask some business partners or ask my staff. And then I nick all their ideas. And then I give them a commission. And everyone wins. And I'm doing good for the world, feeding their families with their the commissions. And I don't even have to tax my brain. Now, I also have a bit of pride that, I, you know, I can have million pound and 10 million pound ideas now and I kind of have some good identity around that. Oh, that makes me feel important. Um, yeah. When the VAT bill goes out, that's pretty dark. <laughs> you know, we pay, se we pay seven figure VAT bills now. And people say, oh, well, it was never your money. Yeah, but when it was in your bank and then the next day it's gone. <laughs> Look at me and tell me you're okay with that. Millions gone. You know, people say, oh, well, you're an entrepreneur, you bypass all this tax. No! <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> we had one recently, as you could probably have sensed. Um, of course, when the bank account's running dry, they're hairy moments. But I, I tend to step up when, think, you know, like, if we've got tens of millions sitting in the bank, I tend to back off. For us, if we're less than two million quid in the bank, that's like panic mode. We've taught ourselves for a panic mode to be there and not there. So you've got like your house, hopefully paid off. You've got all your ISAs you've had since you can do ISAs. You've got all the stocks you put in. You've got your gold, you've got your watches, you've got your savings, different accounts. You've got your current account, then your business accounts. And then when the business account gets under two million, Mark and I start to panic because we forget all this other stuff we've built of layers of wealth and it's good. Mark asked me, he needed, um, he needed some of my assets for, um, for a, a property we're buying at the moment. And I went into my um, net worth statement and I was like, oh, that account has got 60 grand in it. Oh, I didn't realise I had that there, I didn't realise I had that there, I didn't realise I had that And that's a smart thing to do. Because if your warning sign is when you're £28,000 over your overdraft limit, that's when there's danger. So yeah, really bad cash flow and being alone are probably the moments where I've gone, oh, the most. Hi, what's your name? Uh, Hannah Halley. Hi, Hannah. Hi, yeah. um, if you could have invented anything in history, what would it have been? Probably the, um, the replacement for the milk bottle top. Because the rousing family, all of them are worth hundreds of billions. Tetra Pak was their company. So, yeah, that would have been a good one. The post-it note would have been a good one. I tried, to, I tried to do some research on how many post-it notes are sold a year. I don't think there are enough noughts on a calculator. That would have been a good one. I, I think being able to do something that matters would have been great. Like if you cured the world of polio. Or I'd love to, um, when I die, there be like a university that I was able to fund. Like Vanderbilt and Carnegie did. You know, like MIT, I think that was Vanderbilt. I'm not sh exactly sure, but you know, like Harvard and MIT and all the big unis, they were, f they were funded by billionaire philanthropists. I'd like, my to, I'd like my university to be a little bit more of an entrepreneurial way of learning, more so than a traditional way of learning. But a lot of, a lot of courses you can do now are like that from places like MIT. So that would be something cool. But you know, I mean, I can't hide the fact that I want a massive business that helps people across the planet. So money, that would have been a pretty good one, wouldn't it? I am Mr. Mint. <laughs> yeah, I'd not thought about that question, as you can see. Um, but yeah, I definitely would have picked a company that had something that's 
served vast numbers of people and did good as well as did billions. Now sometimes the things that make millions and millions or billions and billions and billions are small problems that annoy us like, you know, everyone remembers when you went to get your milk and the birds had been at it. So what a genius thing. Do you remember when you used to open the Coke cans and then the ring pull came off and then all the litter and then you, had to, then you sort of dropped it in and then the I mean, that would have, t billions, billions and billions and billions. But I probably would have wanted to do something that makes sure that I don't become one of those billionaires that also becomes insane, like Howard Hughes or whatever, you know, like, because, I, you know, I've made money, not billions, but tens and tens of millions. And, you know, you have to learn to manage and deal with money. And, you know, you, more money gives you more problems in different ways. And you have, you know, so, um, you know, that's been, a, that I've learned, I've lo what I've loved as much about money is what having a, more money teaches you. Okay, who's next? Okay, microphone, what's your name, sir? Hi, Lee. Uh, Rob, consider these three things. One, business acumen and a good business idea. Two, a money mindset and a full understanding and application of the concept of money. And three, a burning desire to succeed. To be a successful and wealthy entrepreneur, what ratio of these three qualities are needed or indeed is it possible to succeed without one of them? That for me would create a three circle <laughs> Venn diagram. You know those Venn diagrams where you've got circle, circle, circle and then they overlaps. So could you make vast amounts of success with business acumen, good money mindset but no desire? No. If you had desire and acumen, but a bad relationship with money, you could make a lot, but you could waste a lot. And you could, a lot of people have guilt around money and they can have knowledge and knowledge and knowledge, but often they build the knowledge to cover up the guilt. It's a bit like being busy doing things that aren't important to cover up. The fact that you've got an important job that needs to be done and you're procrastinating. I'm writing a new book at the moment called Get Perfect Later, Start Now. And often busyness is a distraction and a disguise from alleviating the guilt and pain you feel about the main freaking job you've got to do. And being actively procrastinating is just as, you might as well sit on your ass and do nothing, than be busy achieving nothing. So I, I think it's probably roughly a third, a third, a third in a fancy little Venn diagram. You can start without business acumen. You can start without a good money mindset, if you have the desire. Using my life leverage philosophy, if you partner with someone who has one of those that you lack, that's leverage. So Mark had more business acumen than I did when he started, when we started together. He had an interesting relationship with money in that he knew how to make more, but he also had a scarcity mindset around money. I, what he'd make, he'd hoard. Um, and so it, it made him a bit risk averse because he saw his parents go through a divorce and obviously he saw what happened and the way his dad raised him. So he's a bit of a hoarder. And so that limits your growth. All I had was burning desire. So when we met, it was like the, the circles kind of combined. And then probably, Mark, Mark probably earned to hoard a little bit less. I learned to spend a little bit less. Because it wasn't like I hadn't made any money in my life. I just spent more than I earned. I love spending money just as much as I did when I was skint. It's just I earn more than I spend now. And back then I spent more than I earned. So we don't have to overcomplicate over things sometimes. If you've got a hunger and a desire to spend and have nice opulent material items, just earn four times as much 
that that maximum amount would be and then you can appease all your hunger. So normally if I want a new toy, helicopter, car, watch, whatever, I just work out what we need to put on the top line in the bank account. You know, or get an asset to pay for it. So um, I've got to buy Gemma a new car because um, we're selling the RS6, it's two years old. Um, she wants a Maserati, um, which I'm okay with because I'll drive that when she's not got it. <laughs> so an 80 grand car, what does that cost a month? 1,200 quid. Well, you know, one of our commercial conversions pumps out 20 grand a month to Mark and I. It's just another asset, isn't it? So, so that's the way I think about money now. Ah, Stu, how are you? Good, thank you, very good. Thanks. As a disruptive <laughs> entrepreneur, how do you prepare your market for new products? It seems as they'll either be really innovative or left to field. Ah, good question. And I've got a really specific plan for this, which works every time, is I, but I get them bought into the process of creating it. So there's a word for this in the tech world, and it's called crowdsourcing. Not crowdfunding, crowdsourcing. So crowdsourcing is, guys, I've got an idea. Bang, what do you think? Yes, 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 would you want that? So I don't know if you noticed in one of my communities, I just put a post today saying, anyone interested in doing a podcast, question mark? So that is stage one of me, because if four people going, yes, I'm not going to waste my time creating an online course on it. If 40 or 400, I've got a market. And that, to me, is in the marketing plan. That's, you know, like, um, you know, like patient zero. You know, that is stage zero of the marketing is, I'm going to ask you if you want it. Then I'm going to involve you in what it, what, how we create it. So let's say there's demand. There's loads of people that are going, yes. I'm then going to say, well, um, what do you want and not want? I'm going to do a poll. And then what are your biggest pains? And then I'm going to do a, do a poll on that. And then I'm going to go away with a few ideas. And then I'm going to come back with the title and crowdsource that. And then the subtitle and crowdsource that. Just, I mean, you know, obviously you were involved. Thank you very much for your involvement in the editing of money. And that's what we did with that. And that's what we did with Life Leverage. And I wrote Life Leverage Before Money, even though I wanted to write money first, was because most of my market said they wanted Life Leverage Before Money. So that your market, the thing is, there's, Steve Jobs would say, oh, well, I don't do any market research. I know what my customers want. But he's a unicorn. You know, like, don't model a, a sustainable strategy on the fact on what one unique genius can do. When you've been doing your business 20 or 30 years, yeah, then you'll know what they want. But until then, stay humble and ask them. So, uh, and, and that strategy works every time. Because it, what it stops you doing is creating a product that you spend ages doing that you're stock up on that no one buys. Because you knew straight away, because you did a couple of posts and everyone was like, well, that's bollocks. They, they probably wouldn't say that. But um, you just wouldn't get a response. Because no response equals not, no interest in my world. Um, and yeah, and it's, it's beautiful because it's, it's, it's virtually predicting the outcome as much as one can. Hello. Hello. What's your name? It's Claire. Hi, Claire. Hi, Rob. Um, who has been the most disruptive entrepreneur you've met and how have they impacted on you in life and business? Probably Arnold Schwarzenegger. And what he's taught me is what you want to be the best at, you can be the best at. Because if he got good at one thing, bodybuilding, people would have gone, genetics. But actually, if you listen to his story, he was told by everyone he would never have big enough calves 
ever to be Mr. Olympia or whatever. And so what he did is he started, uh, he always wore shorts to the gym on purpose so that he and everyone else could be embarrassed by the size of his calves. And he worked every day on his calves. Now I know that, that sounds kind of a little bit strange in this world, but if you think about that in any other world, that's pretty inspiring. Um, but the genetics argument is absolutely blown out of the water when you realise he became the highest paying actor in the world. And people will go, oh, well, he couldn't act. But actually, he found a, a um, he was able to get himself a role that he could do and be the best at it in the world. And then he disrupted his own career and went and did twins. <laughs> and he did twins for free with no salary. And about, at that time, he could have got 25 million for a film probably or 20 million, you know, whatever. And he said, I'll do no fee, but I want a share of the take. And he made a heck of a lot more on a share of the take. And by the way, that happened with, um, who played Obi-Wan Kenobi one in the first Star Wars? Alec Guinness, was it? He did the same thing, I think. I think he took an upside on the um, take. And that's now a model where actors are going for an upside on the, on the take rather than just their fee. So he did, he, he did that film for free. And that was a risk. And um, of course, you know, he was great in that. And him and Danny DeVito were perfect. And um, then when he got the best in the world at that, he decided he wanted to be a governor, run, run for, and then he did it. And now he's, um, he's a big pusher for um, looking after the planet and taking climate change seriously. And so what he proved to me is whatever you want to be great at, you can be great at it. It's nothing to do with genetics. It's nothing to do with knowledge, experience, model, history, because there's so many different things. And also he's a big time, as he calls it, we call it different, real estate investor. Um, so probably him. Um, but there are many I admire, which is why I, um, I admire Richard Reed, because what he did was different. When everyone on the planet was addicted to sugar, he did something completely different. Um, I interviewed Steve Davis. Really, if you listen to the interview, because you, you thought it was a little bit boring and blah, blah, blah. But actually, you look at his, um, he was very, very, he never let anyone practice with him. And all of the other pros would play with each other, but he never let anyone practice with him because he didn't want anyone to know how good he was. And, um, you know, so like a lot of these people who are the best, they do things in a slightly different way. Arnie used to get in the heads of all the other, he used to go behind the scenes, oh, you know, you're looking a bit flabby there. You know, a bit of water retention going on there. Peacocking around like that. You know, and it's like, it's all part of the game. Um, my dad, millionaire bust, millionaire bust. He got that having pubs, a big part of the business was the property as well as, you know, the actual real estate rather than just the sort of the tent, the lease of the, you know, the going concern. I mean, loads and loads and loads and loads. I think what um, Sheryl Sandberg did, you know, in Google and Facebook and her book, Lean In, is awesome. Yeah, I could, you know, I'm inspired by, I'm inspired by everyone who's good at something and everyone's good at something. So I'm inspired by everyone, I just, you know. And it's not that like I'm not inspired by people who aren't good at something because they're just going through the struggle, but, you know. Yeah, 
and, and you know, I've, I've got a few guests lined up who are very disruptive, who I, I can't say now because I had a couple of guests lined up and I went and publicised it and then they pulled out. So I'm only telling you the ones that are done, done, done deal. But yeah, so there's more to come. All right, so does anyone have any other questions about anything at all? So now you can just abuse me how you see fit. Yes, microphone over. What's your name, sir? It's Mark. Hi, Mark. Hi there. Um, when did you appreciate the importance of mindset and how much should you focus on mindset and uh, actual mechanics or strategy of a business? I'd say very early 2006. So December the 15th, 2005 was the day that changed my life. A week later, I met Mark at the Holiday Inn and decided then I was going to go into property and started reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Richest Man in Babylon, Think and Grow Rich, How to Win Friends and Influence People, you know, seminal books, tick, 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 tick. And um, my flatmate who rented a room out of, one of, out of the only house I had at the time, which my dad had put the deposit in for because I was skint and I was paying the mortgage and I was struggling to pay the mortgage, so I rented out a room in a very small house because I couldn't afford the mortgage. Um, he saw what I was doing and he's like, I've got some CDs under the bed for you and I'm well into music, so I was like, I'll have some of them. Um, the more depressed I got, by the way, the, the, the heavier the music got uh, until, until it got death and German and then I knew I was in a bad place. And um, the, um, the musician, the singer-songwriter was Tony Robbins and I didn't know it wasn't music because I'd never seen seven CDs in a box, I just thought it was seven albums. I'm not, I'm not joking. And I put it on and there was this American dude shouting through my hi-fi and I was like, what is this shit? This is shit. No one can be that happy. Fuck off. It's quintessentially English. You're so positive, I hate it. And, um, but the good thing was, because I was an artist, I was painting all day. So basically, all day and all night, I would paint and do um, sparring and kickboxing and training. That's what I do all day and all night. Um, so I had my studio in the dining room, which then became Progressive Properties headquarters when we started it. And in the living room was my hi-fi. And back then there was all, not all this Bluetooth and stuff, so I couldn't control it. So I went and put it on and just went and did my painting. I couldn't really be asked to go and change it and left it on. And probably by the end of maybe CD2, I was like, wow. Because I know this sounds crazy to all of us in the room who know these things now, but like, you know, it's not about the blowing of the wind, but it's how you set your sail. Well, it wasn't something I understood. I didn't know you could choose to be happy. I didn't know that something bad could happen and you could still see the best in it. I was that person that, that if you hit a bad golf shot, I was angry, and if someone said something to you, I was upset, and I was a victim to anyone else's controlling of how I felt. And I didn't know that you could choose to be happy. I had, it just seems so weird to say that something so simple but could be so profound. And um, you know, I didn't understand that my individual perception wasn't the reality, it was just my perception. And so you can change your reality by changing your perception of said reality, which doesn't exist. And that was a bit of a like, wow, and because this was all on Awaken the Giant Within and Get the Edge. 
and, and, and then I was sold. And I'm, I think um, something that's good about me and probably something that's not good about me is I take literally what people tell me. So if people tell me something, I believe them. And if they lie to me, I'll probably believe them. So like, if you teach me to dance or something I can't do, I, I, I look like a robot at first. I'm trying to do it very literally. So when I listen to Tony Robbins, he said you've got to walk down the street and look in people's eyes and smile at them like you're their best mates. And you've got to shout at the top of your voice in front of people to get over your fear. Every day in every way, I'm getting better and better, yes. So I'm walking down Park Road doing that in Peterborough. And you can imagine the reaction I'm getting. No JVs there. I just did it. I got on the exercise bike in my living room. I angled it so I could see through the window in my drive. I could see my driveway. And I pictured the Nissan 350Z with orange leather there. I mean, this was 11 years ago. So back then, my ideal car was a Nissan 350Z. Loved it. And I'm there riding for an hour, picturing the Nissan 350Z in orange leather. Oh, of course, I did. you can't get an orange leather car. As it turns out, I bought a 350Z with orange leather, part orange leather. And so I just took it literally what he said. And then I go for a run with Mark. And then there was the GTR, which was the new one. The beast. The fastest car in the world. Eats Porsches and Ferraris for alive. So when Mark and I would go for the run, I'd pretend to be really knackered when we passed the GTR. And I'd sort of stop. And I'd just look at it. And I'd be like, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine. Because I don't know if I told Mark that, he'd be like, get out of town. He wasn't ready for personal development at this point. <laughs> he was just getting used to me. Um, and true enough, I got the GTR and, and visualisation and all this stuff. And then I was sold. And it's been a part of my life ever since. And um, the combination of that and reading Think and Grow Rich, I just implement what I learned in Think, Think and Grow Rich to this day. So Think and Grow Rich, um, Napoleon Hill does the mastermind in his mind, where he closes his eyes and he imagines Andrew Carnegie, Vanderbilt and all the billionaires Getty around a table and he's got a seat and he's got a problem and he asks them the problem. And I do that and I've been doing that every day for nearly 11 years. And I close my eyes, health, wealth, success, happiness, strength, non-judgment, abundance, love, gratitude. And those words I've been saying in that order for 11 years. And I visualise everything that I want. And if there's big problems, I go and I visualise it. And I go, don't go to Mark when he's got problems and say, I'll go and visualise on it tonight. Because he's still not that into personal development. <laughs> He's like, no, sort the problem out now. But it works. Microphone to Sam. You talk a lot about um, income generating areas and tasks in your books. And I'm wondering if you're at the beginning of property or business, how you work out what those are if you're not making any money. Okay, so you ask other people who are doing it, what are there? And if they know what KRAs and IGTs are, you ask them. Or what makes you the money in it? And or you take an educated guess for now what you think will. So if you're in property and you're starting and you're not making money, I think if you think about it, you can work out that viewings leads to deals and therefore going and see estate agencies viewings and therefore that's got to be in my key result areas. Going to events to meet JV partners has got to be in my key result areas. But then that's going to events to meet JV partners, not just going to events. I mean, I know you're really good at networking, but some people aren't so good at networking. So, you know, you've got to do the whole thing and not just the easy thing. Uh, and then over time, you start seeing things when you start making money. And then the, what makes you the most money, you just kind of move towards and then you um, leverage out everything else. So if you're starting in property, it is the sourcing of them, 
the raising finance of them and the managing of them. So I've got a little acronym that I use that's easy for people to remember, V-O-F-M, Viewings, Office, Finance, Management. So they are the four things, whether you're doing a, a shed single let or you're trying to HMO the cathedral, you know, whatever scale you're at, you've got to view it, you've got to offer on it, you've got to have the money to do it and then you've got to manage it well and that's convert, let, etc. Anyone else? We'll come round to Conrad. I would encourage you, if you haven't asked a question, to ask a question. I know it's not everyone's style, and you know I respect we're all a bit different. But uh, you have travelled a bit of a way to get here, and you know I'll do my best to help you. Conrad, your question. Uh, you've mentioned before you, you read a lot of books and listen to a lot of audio books every week. And uh, is, is there a certain time you listen to them during the day so they stick, or yeah. it's easier to remember? So I'm. Um, Conrad asked me this in the break and I asked him to ask this in front of you all because I know this is on a lot of people's minds. So I think one of the things I'm actually quite pleased with myself about is I've got a lot of person, people, into listening to audiobooks and podcasts. They changed my life and I know what difference they made. And I'm quite pushy with my podcast to stick it everywhere. Not just to listen to mine, but to listen to podcasts. Because there's a lot of smart people. Not, you know, not just what I do, but other podcasts that are given great information away that you can leverage. But a lot of people, they have the challenge of, first of all, getting their head around them, because we're a bit creatures of habit, and if we can't do it, we don't want to do it. But that doesn't take much. But then it's, a lot of people say to me, oh, well, I don't know how to retain the information, or I can't do this two times speed thing, or whatever. And I've gone through that journey. So there's a few things to think about. Number one is, if you use net time leverage, you actually gain time. When you read a book, you have to only read the book because you can't drive and read the book or go to the gym and read the book. Maybe if you're on the exercise you can supply bike, you can do that and read the book. I don't know, but other than that, you can't do anything and read the book. But you can walk, you can run, you can fly, you can travel, you can do any kind of housework, anything at all, and listen to podcasts and audiobooks. So what used to be dead time is now leverage time. Number two. The assumption is because you're listening and not reading, you can't retain the information. But what you're forgetting is your unconscious mind is retaining the information. It's just your conscious mind that isn't. So for anything to become a habit, it has to go in your unconscious mind. For it to settle in your unconscious mind, your conscious mind has to get out the way. So you're, you're learning martial arts. Block, punch. Do it at the same time, block, punch. Do it, block, punch. And then you can see the shoulder twitch a bit so you can see the punch coming in advance. And it's habit that gets you the reaction to read the shoulder, for example. The best way to get something in your unconscious mind is to get rid of your conscious mind. When you're doing something else and listening to an audio, you've got rid of your conscious mind because you're, you're actually doing a workout or walking or looking at the scenery or relaxing or meditating. So you've got your conscious mind out of the way. So contrary to popular belief where they think they won't retain it, you'll actually retain it better. But you've got to trust it. So if, you go, if you're listening, you're going, oh, fucking hell, it's too fast. I'll st I have to pause to write this down for fuck shit. Uh, uh, uh. Oh, I'm never going to get this through. You've got your conscious mind in the way. It's like if you watch the, if you're into golf or you're into tennis, or any sport, you know, the people have got the power. You know, like if you watch Bruce Lee, it's not, <clears throat> it's, there's no tension. It's just like totally relaxed. Like, you know, Bruce Lee throws a kick and he's just, 
you know, and I don't know, um, Federer or whoever. It's just graceful, isn't it? Because they're not over-trying. So it actually really did help me because I was over-trying when I was reading books. I'm reading it going, I've got to retain it, I've got to retain it, I've got to retain it. Got to the point where I didn't read a book, I didn't want to read a book that had too much information in it. But that isn't the point of a book. Now, here's the thing with the audio is, if you listen to it on two times speed, you get rid of your conscious mind even more. And then you've got two goes. Because you listen to it twice as quick, so it means you only did it in half the time, so you can do it again. So twice on two times speed is probably better than once on one time speed. But you weren't doing anything anyway. You were travelling. Or Yeah, so... Um, and what? Because I get to test this, because I do this a lot. Speaking, podcasts, you know, I used to do a lot more speaking since I retired and gave them to all my trainers. But all the stories, like, you know, the question was asked about if I could have had one company. I told you about Tetra Pak and I told you about Post-it Note. It's just stuff I've heard in books and it just comes through me. I didn't have to go, wait a minute, let me get my notes out. But part of it is having faith in your ability to get rid of your conscious faculty, which gets in the way. All right. Hello. Joe! He's alive. You alright? How are we doing? You walked in like you just won The <laughs> Apprentice or something. <laughs> you alright mate? How you doing mate? You well? Good to see you. Hi Take everybody, how are you doing? For those of you that don't know Joe, Joe is from Peterborough and he's moving to London because that's what everyone does if they get successful in Peterborough. <laughs> they move out. And you won the, which Apprentice was it? 2015. The 2015 mm -hmm. Apprentice. He's got a, a hugely successful business now and obviously is Lord Sugar's business partner. Um, he's done this out of his own time. Well, at least I haven't received an invoice yet. <laughs> so if you can make him feel good, that would be great. So thanks for donating your no time problem. to come and, you know, be on the podcast and obviously um, inspire everyone here. I'm a mum of three boys. Yeah. Um, I know you've had your difficulties at school and stuff. Um, my eldest is coming up for 15, not enjoying school or having constant battles with him about school and stuff. Yeah. What can I say to him? from you, or what advice can you give to me as a mum of that, you, you as a 15 year old, as a, you know, what can I say to him to make it? It depends think? exactly what situation he's in, but I mean, probably one of the most important ones is don't write him off if he's not working well in that environment. Um, you know, a lot of people, when you're in that situation, do write you off because they think that you're no good, you know, they don't want to put any time or any effort into you, but they don't realise that it's the environment that's actually, you know, putting the pressure on and that's why you're not working well. That's why you're not being successful at school. But then when you get out and you go into something different, like if he's more practically minded and doesn't learn in an academic environment, if he goes out and gets into college, that's when I really started to excel, when I got into employment, when I started to work manually at that point. That's what I was very, very good at, becoming an engineer at the beginning in the early days. And that's when I really changed around. I went to work every day. I went on time, wore my uniform, was polite, you know, didn't answer back. All of the things that I was completely different at school, um, you know. So really, I would tell him, t tell him to stay in school and learn as much as possible because I regret it later on in life, not being able to use Excel and not being great at computers and Word and all of that type of stuff. I'm not very good at and I rely on a lot of people to do it for me. Um, so to learn as much of that as he can, but he's probably not going to listen to you anyway. So just let him. Okay. So on that note, a couple of things. Because part of it will be because he's coming from his mum. Or could be. I don't want to judge you, but you know, of course, it, you know, you know what's best for him, but he's a teenager. 
if you could find someone that he admires and you could say to them, tell my son this, it might work that way. So I've already got Bobby a coach. And normally they, kids will get coaches at six, but I got Bobby involved with Aaron just when he turned five. And actually I didn't really care if he didn't learn anything or do anything and it wasn't technical at all. It was Bobby is with someone else twice a week that's not me. Because, you know, I'm not do this, do that, do this, do that, do this, do that. And in the end, he's going to be like, no, because, you know, sometimes like, you know, like I, I say to him, you know, hold the grip tight, put your power in. And on purpose, he'll sort of do this. <laughs> and he's basically doing that because, Dad, sorry if you didn't know what I was doing there. But he's basically doing that because he's taking the piss out of me. Um, but when Aaron, if I say to Aaron, there's a couple of flaws that you did technically that you need to sort out. And then Aaron goes in and says it to him. So if he could get a mentor or someone he admires or he wants to be like uncle or friend, that has got a great chance of working. The next thing is kids are not thick. They're not whatever. They're not, you know, what they are is disengaged and bored with shitty subjects they're not interested in, who, with teachers who haven't taken time to show an interest in caring what their values are. Because if, if this lesson, if the, if the analogy of geography was all about chasing girls, every 15 year old kid would love geography. <laughs> if it was about a link to computer games, every 15 year old kid would love computer games. So um, you should study John Demartini and listen to the stuff he does on. I started to yeah. and, and it's really, it's been quite an eye opener. Yeah. I think, I think you're right, he's definitely not thick. I think that's part and parcel of the problems of things aren't challenging the things that are interesting to him aren't challenging him mm. i took him to his first ppn meet um a few wow. weeks back and yeah. uh on the way there on the way back he was actually talking to me about property it was great it was yeah. fab. so um for those of you that have got young kids uh, i think because i mean i'm told that most of a, a, a person's personality is formed by seven so one of the reasons i got bob into golf very early and i got him listening to tony robbins in the gtr when he was one was because I thought if I can program this in his mind by the age of seven, it's there. So I didn't let him hang around with um, you know, anyone I thought might influence him in a bad way. I was very careful which schools I put him in and who his babysitters are and everything else. His babysitters are really just sort of parents and are very careful what people said to him. Um, and you, you, you see it come out of them. There were three words that I heard a little while ago and they stuck out in my mind and it's trust the process. Um, and Sorry, I mate, think, let me just say thanks. Yeah, no worries. See you later. Cheers. We'll catch up soon. And it's um, trust the process. And I think once I realised that the bad days and the bad things that happened were meant to happen, it makes, it makes them a lot easier in a very strange way. It's, they're hard to deal with because they're shit and you don't want to deal with them and they're hard. So there's no easy way around it. But when you know that this is meant to happen and it's going to happen and you accept it, you know, just accept that it's going to be bad. And as Rob said, you know, the next day, time, time is a great healer. So if you can get through it, tomorrow you're going to wake up, something good will happen and the process continues always trust the process. So every time my world's falling into bits and it happens, it still happens, you think, oh my God, it's all going to part. Or, you know, one day you're up and you're like, yes, I'm gonna make it, I'm dominating everywhere. You know, then you're down again, then you're up, then you're down. But if you trust that process and you know it, it makes it a lot easier to deal with. Because you can't have the good without the bad. Simple as that. You're reading out the wall. Yeah. What part of it are you most looking forward to, to implementing? Um, well, I say I'm reading it. I've got through probably about 
20 minutes of the audiobook so far. Um, so it's really, it's really the strategy and understanding your enemy. I like how he says that a battle was not won on the field, you know, and, and being well prepared before you go into something is very, very key rather than just charging out there. And I think, you know, in my experience, I've been a bull in a china shop for many, many years, especially in my younger days. I was, I was just straight into everything. Like I told you, I started a business of reading a book. You know, it, it, got, it got me going so much that I quit my job overnight and took out a 15 grand loan. I'd only just moved back from Australia and I'd only just moved into a property that was costing me 650 quid a month and all the other things I had to pay for. Um, you know, so it's all about just sort of calming down and preparing for the battle that lies ahead rather than just going straight out on the field ready for a fight, if that makes sense. Is there somebody you're particularly looking forward to fighting with? British Gas. <laughs> the aim is to become the UK's number one boiler installation business, you know, and I want to be number one. I don't go into anything to compete, I go into dominate, you know, and I think that's very, very important. You know, whether I'll achieve it or not, that's, that's to be seen. But, um, you know, I think you've got to have a, um, you've got to have something that you want to dominate. Go on, mate, you was next. Uh, you mentioned the original lot. Uh, Say that again. Leverage, leveraging your, your work. Yeah. But do you find it then hard, even if you can get everything leveraged, to switch off? Very, very hard yeah, to switch off. I yeah, I struggle a lot, especially because when I go to when I go to bed, I listen to audio. So then I'm just oh god, I'm up again. Then at two o'clock in the morning, I'm sat up writing an email, emailing myself of all the things that I've triggered. You know, because when you listen to this stuff, it's like wow, yeah, I can do that. Or suddenly something clicks and you see it in a different light. So then I'm up, then I'm writing notes. But I say the hours between 2 and 4 a.m. are probably when some of my best ideas have come out. Because that's the time when, although I'm still going, I'm switched off from the world, but still buzzing in my own mind, if that makes sense. You've got no one around you, so you're quiet and you can really think. You know, you're not distracted by all the day-to-day all the -day noise of, of things that are meaningless at the time, you know, or not that important. Um, so I do find it very hard to switch off. I can't really give you an answer on how to because I can't myself at the moment, if I'm honest with you, so. Um, do you think that's a quality or a burden? Um, it's a bit of both. Like I say, some of my best ideas come at that time, but also, you know, it, it means lack of sleep, which means that the next day you're not so productive because you haven't slept so much. It means that you struggle to relax. Um, it's, it's hard for me to chill, you know, I can't go home and sit on the sofa anymore. Them days are gone for me. I can't sit in front of the television. I can't watch anything unless it's a Sunday and I've been out the night before and I'm hungover and I want to chill out. You know, that's the only time I can ever relax and watch TV. If not, I have to move, I have to work. I feel guilty if I'm not. And that's something that I really need to work on to chill myself out a little bit and maybe enjoy what I'm creating and making. Um, rather than always wanting to be better every single day. Because you're going to get to a point, and I always think, when am I ever going to be satisfied with where I am? Because two years ago, if you'd have asked me where I am now, I thought I would have made it. You know, that would have been my ultimate life goal. If you ask me where I am now, it's minor what I've done, and I'm ready for the next thing. But when do you appreciate? And that's something that I'm learning. So, so you think a goalpost will always change? Yeah. I think so, yeah because I'm just never going to be happy. And that's a hard thing to come to terms with. But I always want to keep challenging myself. You know, I have things along the way 
that do make me happy, like I'm able to pay for my mum to go on holidays and all of that type of stuff. So that gives me great satisfaction, massive. I prefer to do that than spend the money on myself, but I always know that I've got more to give. So I want to live my potential. Does that make sense? What's your next five-year goal? What's your, what you got planned? The next one is millionaire by the time I'm 30. Um, that's one that I really want to achieve. I've had that for a very, very long time. Uh, millionaire status and um, one that I've just recently achieved is living in London. I moved to King's Cross recently um, and that's been a massive life goal for me to get into London. I was born in Peterborough and I don't know where you were from but I was born in Peterborough and there's a little village about 10 minutes away near the A1 called Yaxley. Um, I grew up around there 20 odd years um, and then you know I really wanted to go out and, and see the city so London was something that I've achieved recently. Millionaire by the time I'm 30. Get my mum out of work before she's 60 or as soon as possible. So I want to have enough wealth to be able to fund that. Um, that sort of ties in with the millionaire thing as well. So those goals are sort of interlinked. Um, so yeah. And continue to grow the business really. Region by region is where we're going. I'm planning on diversifying in, in a number of different ways, I think. Something that I took from The Apprentice and, you know, I'd never ever done public speaking before or anything like that. And for those who watched it in the final, I got to speak and present in um, City Hall in London in front of 250 people. First time I'd ever spoke on stage, put a presentation together, put a slideshow together. And it was like for the biggest thing of my life, you know, if I messed this up, I was going to lose in front of everybody watching the TV. Um, so after doing that, I mean, I remember coming down the stairs and I was nervous. I was really, really nervous, especially about two weeks, well, not two weeks before, but two weeks, episodes before. I was in Tesco's and we made this crappy cereal bar. It was absolute shite. They sent me out into them to do some market research and I was going back to pitch with them to give feedback to the, um, to the consumers there. And, there. and it was absolute crap. It was like bird seed falling out of this packet. And I had to stand there and tell them what the people had said. But although it wasn't dishonest, I tried to pick the best words to piece the feedback. And as I spoke, it was in a very small room, lots of lights like this. Wasn't really used to talking. I was very, very nervous. I had about five cans of Red Bull, three double espressos. And all of a sudden, I just paused. And I couldn't talk. And I was standing in front of everyone and I couldn't speak. And then luckily, one of the other colleagues jumped in. But that was one of the most sort of embarrassing, scary times of my life. And then when I was standing at the top on the stairs that come down like that, I was thinking, do not freeze. In front, this is the final, do not freeze. Anybody sees you freeze, um, you know, then you're never going to live it down. Anyway, cut a long story short, the public speaking side of things for me was something that gave me incredible adrenaline and buzz. Um, and since coming off the back of The Apprentice, I've done a lot of public speaking, keynote talks, all of that type of stuff. Pays very well, and I also really, really enjoy it. You know, I really enjoy that. So I'm really pursuing that at the moment. But I really like the whole, you know, motivation, self-development. I really like what Rob is achieving with Progressive and, and the events and stuff that he does. And I'd like to become and do a lot more of what he does. You know, working with people and helping people to grow businesses and just be in a good environment. And I mean, I don't know what everybody does in the room, but normal day-to-day -day businesses can be stressful. But for me, if this is your business, getting to sit and talk and 
teach and grow and help people, that's a great place to come to work every day because you're meeting people that are hungry and are like you and want to do the same thing. Do you know what I mean? You know, that everybody's on the same wavelength and they really, really thrive off that type of environment. So I'd like one day to have something like this. So I'm doing Rob's thing. <laughs> Meeting as much as I can with him for five years, taking all of his info. <laughs> Cut that bit out, yeah. Yeah. What was it like behind the scenes on Apprentice? Like, you know, we see all this yeah. image on TV. What was it actually like? It was a bit like Big Brother, but with no cameras. Um, it really, really was. I mean, it wasn't a nice environment. For nine weeks, I was away. Um, I was, what, 25 at the time. You go away for nine weeks. You can only tell three people that you're going. And I had a business at the time with about four vans on the road. I said we were doing property management work. We had contracts for 2,000 homes, and I was the main man. I only had a part-time woman in the office that was doing, you know, three, day, three days a week. Um, you know, and we had a lot going on. We were doing about 600 jobs a month, and I was running everything. And then I had to leave. The night before I left, I had to tell all my staff that I was going to Italy because my auntie was ill. And the only person I could tell was the part-time lady. And I said to her, look, I'm go I've got this opportunity to go on The Apprentice. I know I'm going to win. It's massive risk. But can you run my business for nine weeks? Because you ain't going to see me. I can't call you. You won't be able to talk to me. You're going to have to make the payments, run all the engineers, work with all of our clients. And she was 55. And bless her, she did it. She did it for me, and I went, I disappeared. I emailed all my clients, all my staff. Uh, my auntie's not very well, um, I'm going. She lives on a farm in Italy, in the south. You're not gonna hear from me, there's no Wi-Fi, there's no signal. That was what I had to tell them, genuinely. So, for me, I, was, I had all of that going on in the background. Will I have a business to go back to that I've spent the last two and a half years building? Because I didn't know. Um, but then you're operating 18 hour days. Um, you're all staying in the same room. You don't like each other. We, I did get on with a few of them, but you know, they're your competition, they're your enemy. You're battling against them. You could be at any point, you're going head to head in the boardroom. Then you've got to take that home, you know, and people can't leave it at the doorstep. Um, you know, and it's quite a stressful environment. I don't sleep much anyway, so being in there was very hard. I was anxious quite a lot, um, you know, because you don't know what's going to come the next day. You don't know what situation you're going to be in. You don't know what's going to happen in the boardroom. Is this your week to go home? I've come this far. You know, I'm three weeks in now. I could win this. I'm five weeks in now. I could win this. So it was a very, very hard environment um, to be in. But, you know, the question was, really what was it like? I mean, there was a lot, it was like Big Brother because you'd go home, people, you'd go into rooms and people would be whispering and all of that type of stuff. And I ain't got no time for small talk. It, I don't entertain it whatsoever. You know, I'm straight to the point. I don't want to hear anything like that. No backstabbing. If I've got something to say, I'll say it straight to your face. So I really didn't like that bit. That was quite hard for me to deal with. If I walked into a room and I could hear two people whispering, I'd like, get out. Go and do that somewhere else because I'm going to sleep or whatever it was, you know. So, yeah, it wasn't easy. It was very, very stressful. I don't know if you, do you remember Gary? Um, he was like a tall Brummy guy that worked for Tesco's. Yeah. He became like my best friend in there. He, he slept in the bed next to mine and uh, we, 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 we got on very, very well. Um, Richard, the marketing guy, he, he was quite good. Um, you know, and uh, we, we had a lot of rivalry and competition. Um, and yeah, I, I don't really like to talk about the not so good ones, to be honest. There's always some that hit you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
You mentioned about doing public speaking, and you've yeah. been doing loads since. Um, have you had any people coach you, train you? Who is good? Are you reading? Well, um, not reading, but listening to people. YouTube is literally where I've picked up all of my techniques and YouTube and practice and doing bad talks, you know, as well. You've got that, that, that helps you work out what you've done wrong. I always like to analyse my performance in everything, understand how I can improve, what I did wrong, how I can get better. I always try to record them so I can watch them back as well, see if I'm waffling, see if I'm you know, moving my arms too much, see if I'm waving from side to side because I'm nervous, seeing if I'm making people laugh or I'm losing their interest. But I learned so much from YouTube. I think it's probably one of the best tools that I ever came across. You know watching all the techniques that people put on there but also going to things and and watching people like Rob talking going to events and understanding them analyzing them how are they talking how long do they pause for how do they introduce you know how do they use the tone of their voice to engage the audience when they're talking more quiet when they're talking louder talking faster you know what what emotion they put in so um yeah I learn from people and I learn from YouTube but I also learn from watching back. And I think that's good to always keep analysing your performance all of the time. Yep. The business plan that you put in at the start of The Apprentice, how would you have improved that if you could have, if you had that time again? Um, the original one I put in was a franchise model, um, was growing Brigasse as a franchise, and I think that was a good business plan. I think that it wasn't right for the brand at that time because it was very... Um, it was very young in its, in its birth, really. It hadn't been going for long enough. People didn't know um, who it was. Um, but business plans, for me, it's good to have one. But I've diversified quite a bit in where I originally started. We were a maintenance company, as I said. Then I wanted to do the franchise model. Then for the first six months with Sugar, we were a maintenance company. We tried new build contracts and all of that type of stuff. Margins were crap, bad payment terms, very, very risky. Um, and then we are now a boiler installation business um, and all we do is install central heating systems in private domestic properties and it's allowed us to simplify um, but grow much much faster with much better margins and um, you know I think you can start out one way but you can follow different paths depending on sort of where it takes you um, so it's, it's hard to say what I, what I would have took differently um, mine was tricky because I thought taking, my honest, honest answer, I thought taking a plumbing business to Lord Sugar wouldn't be interesting. So I try to sex it up a little bit and think what can I do to make this a bit different? Franchise, you know, I, I, that's what I could think of at the time to, to make it and try and grab that attention. But I was very, very lucky in the sense that they gave me a steer to say, no, I will look at doing something else, if that makes sense. At the end, they were like, the franchise model's wrong, you've bought the wrong business, it's too young. And I was like, well, I'll listen. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I don't mind, tell me, what do you want me to do? How are we gonna do it? You know, I know the industry, franchise is just one type of what the work is, I know it inside out, so let's just move it around. So I was lucky, because they gave me the option to change. Um, why did you not franchise? Why did we not? Because yeah. they wouldn't, it wouldn't run with the model. You said it was too young. At the time, the, the brand wasn't recognised enough. Yeah, the business has only been established for a couple of years. So they said that potentially people wouldn't buy in. You know, people wouldn't pay 25 grand for a Impregas franchise and then all the support because who's Impregas? 
even though we got huge exposure after the show, we probably could have sold a lot of them in hindsight looking back. I think I could have sold a lot of franchises. Um, but hey-ho, I had to take the advice. And say that again? Yeah, potentially, yeah, potentially. And I don't never rule anything out. How do you um, balance family and business between the two to make sure one doesn't get compromised over the other? How, how do you... How do you look at that? Um, I think, I think they do compromise, and I think it's it's very very hard to get a balance, especially for me in the early days. Rob always talks about not working hard, working smart, which is very very true. But I am a strong believer at the beginning, you've got to work hard, and if you want to do something big style, you've got to be prepared to sacrifice because you can't have it all. You know when you are going to have to work late, you aren't going to see your kids as much, you aren't going to see your mum as much, you aren't going to be able to go out and see your friends as much, you know, but it depends what you really want and, and where you want your business to be. If it's something that you can manage in a night, an eight till five time slot and then you can see your family, then great. But you know, but if you don't want to sacrifice and you don't want to work long hours and stuff at the start, then what Rob was talking about before is sometimes it's best to stay working for somebody because you can't have it all. And that's, um, that's something that I've come to terms with. But I do try a lot more now and a lot, a lot harder to see my mum, to see my nephews and all of that type of stuff. But once you get through that bit, it becomes easier because you can step away. You know, three years ago, I couldn't be sitting here doing this with my time. I was doing everything, you know, to ridiculous o'clock in the morning. But once you've got your organisation built and you've got a structure in place and you've got an infrastructure of staff, you can walk away and you don't have to give it as much time. And that's when you can, you know, but I think early on, you've, got to, you've really got to bust it to get everything into place and then you can, and then you can. Does that answer it? it does. Yeah? Good. Awesome, well, that's a wrap. Awesome. All right, guys, take care. Lovely to meet you all. See you. Bye-bye.